grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our congregation is a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which has about 6,000 congregations across the United States. Our membership in the Synod is voluntary, and members of the Synod are to agree on doctrine and practice. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was organized 175 years ago on October, uh, I'm sorry, April 26, 1847, when I believe 22 delegates met in Chicago, and they were from the states from New York to Missouri. And just 14 congregations started the synod, but there were delegates from other congregations which joined soon thereafter. They organized the synod because they were like-minded German Lutherans agreeing on doctrine and also on worship forms. They declared altar and pulpit fellowship with each other because they were in agreement on all articles of the Word of God. The first constitution of the Missouri Synod emphasized the study of God's Word, the study of doctrine, hearing the Word of God and keeping it. Therefore, children, according to the Constitution, could not be confirmed until they learned the text of the Catechism and also a goodly number of hymns to serve them well throughout their lives. A hundred hours of Catechism instruction was encouraged, and yes, that was put in the Constitution of the Synod, and gifted students were also supposed to be taught additionally so that they could refute the false teachings that are so common in other churches. Churches could not be members of the synod if they followed their own worship forms or if they used doctrinally impure hymnals. And while the founders of the Missouri Synod recognized the scriptures do not have a set form of worship by which we are to follow today, they wanted to express their unity of doctrine through a unified form of worship. Not only that, but they acknowledged that much of the worship forms that were being observed by other churches throughout America in those days would have compromised their doctrinal confession and stance on the pure word of God. And despite the difficulty of travel in those days, a synod met in convention not every three years like we do today, but every single year. And the main purpose of the convention was not what we do today to engage in all the business matters, but the main purpose was to study doctrine, the word of God. Nearly three decades later, when the Iowa district was formed, the president of the synod, CFW Walther at the time, he joyously declared that doctrinal studies took up more than half of the convention time when the delegates met in convention, and that the delegates attended the doctrinal studies better than they attended the business portions of the convention. Today, when they have their Bible studies, that's when many people want to go out and take a break. My, how times have changed. Doctrine is given a back seat to business in our conventions, 
Many in our synod now stress diversity of worship, which divides our synod. But this should not be surprising since Jesus declares in our gospel that a house divided against a house falls. It is impossible to remain united when there is not unity. In today's gospel, Jesus declares, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That was our synod's intention, which was very evident in that first constitution. Despite the many hardships that they faced in the mid-1800s, they knew of the blessings that they had when they heard God's word and when they kept it. They knew that they were justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and they, despite their sin, knew that they were forgiven by Christ. Their sins were blotted out, canceled, because Jesus bled and died for them in their place. And if Jesus did this for them, how could they then mix what they knew know to be true and a pure confession of the faith with other religious ideas and viewpoints that would be false? How could they blend their worship with revivalism, which took the focus off of Jesus? And how could they not but teach their children with diligence the Christian faith? One final thing that was emphasized by this young church body was the Christian education of the young. And at that time, it was not through Sunday school, but instead it was through, it was through Christian day schools. It was so important to this very young synod that they only admitted into the synod churches that had Christian day schools or were planning to start one or partner with a neighboring church to operate one. That's right, that very young and poor church body used to require Christian day schools. Why? Because they acknowledged, they testified, they knew from their own experience that the church is always one generation from disappearing. Many who founded the synod left persecution, religious persecution in Germany, and they wanted to preserve the pure confession of the faith which had been preserved to them for generations, but not without its hardships. And so, while the world is busy indoctrinating children into false belief, the church knew that it was important to teach children and inculcate in them the saving word of Christ. Christian education strives to teach children that Jesus alone is our Savior and strives to point their eyes, fix their hearts and their minds, their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. After all, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, our synod no longer requires Christian day schools to be operated by our churches. In some places, it is simply impractical. In other places, they still have multiple churches working together to operate a school. And in some places, as was reported by our synod's reporter a month ago, that some churches are now forming what's called micro schools. And this has especially become common in light of COVID and the changes that have taken place there. But micro schools are where churches operate a either, they, they, um, they have a, a um, place for homeschoolers to meet, or churches operate a small Christian day school without the great expense that is involved in operating a, a regular Christian day school. But even without one, churches must continue to teach the Christian faith to the young. It is of utmost importance, which also means it is of, of, of utmost importance 
for parents to be diligent in teaching their children at home, bringing them to the divine service, and also having them attend our educational opportunities like Wednesdays with the Word and Sunday School. So we continue, even if we don't have a regular day school, to teach through the divine service, Sunday school, Bible studies, catechism classes, and so on. And of course, we and our church rejoice in having a preschool which teaches the little lambs the saving word of Jesus. And in addition to daily Bible stories, they gather in the sanctuary each week in chapel for them to grow in Christ. Blessed are they for hearing the word of God. What a treasure. Can you think of something more valuable than to come to the knowledge of Christ and to know who they are, why they are created, what their purpose is in life, and where they are going? Now, certainly, the three R's are important, but they do not make people wise to salvation. The three R's are important so that they can learn to work a job. That too is important because as it is written in the Bible, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And so eating is important, working is necessary, education is required for work. But as Jesus declared, and we heard two weeks ago, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so eating, filling our bellies, not only with food, but with all the pleasures of this world, are not the main or greatest things that we need. For if we wish to survive spiritually and receive eternal salvation, we need to feed on the word of God and receive the sacraments instituted by Christ. Our gospel today begins with Jesus casting out a demon from a man which kept him mute. Keeping people silent is a tool of the devil. He wants people to be mute when it comes to the word of God. He wants to see to it that Christian homes are devoid of the word of God at home. He wants to see to it that people find other things to do rather than gather in God's house. That way, the devil thinks, that then we cannot be a light to those around us, and that way the devil might be able to get by without the faith being passed on. At the end of our gospel, Jesus contrasts this silence or this muteness with the hearing of the word. For again, Jesus said, faith, for Jesus had declared, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Why is this so blessed? Because as it is written, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So how do we keep this word of God? He says that we hear it and keep it. So there's two aspects. Well, in order to keep the word of God, we first need to hear it. And we can't conclude that we remember everything that we learned when we were instructed in catechism class. I took two years of German in high school. I took another year in college. I took a refresher online a couple of years ago. But I don't pretend to be able to say that I know German as well now as I did even when I took it in high school. I just simply don't. 
Why? Because I'm not in it enough. I'm not using it. And when we are not in the word of God, we also begin to lose it. And then, therefore, we are unable to keep it. So the first aspect of keeping the word of God is by hearing it, observing the third commandment. For we cannot keep it when we do not know what it says. Therefore, we go to church, we take personal and family time in prayer and the study of the word of God, and we do not live simply as Sunday morning Christians, but instead our entire life reflects the Christian faith. We also ponder on this word of God, and we teach it diligently to those around us. We believe his holy word. We follow the commandments of God. We live in continual repentance as the season of Lent reminds us. After all, when Jesus began preaching, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he said repent, he means that the entire life of the Christian is to be one of repentance. Not just for those big sins, but, the, but we're to plead guilty of all sin, even those we are not aware of as we do in the Lord's Prayer. After all, even the smallest sin is enough to separate us from God. And so we plead guilty of it so that God can reconcile us to himself and cancel out that sin so that we are innocent before him. Now, repentance is not simply saying, I'm sorry, God, but it really wasn't a big deal, so you, Lord, shouldn't make a big deal of it either. That's what we want to do. We want to explain our things away, minimize them, pretend that its impact wasn't a big deal. It was just a misunderstanding or a mistake. That's not repentance. Repentance is not saying, well, I'm forgiven, so I'll just keep on doing it. Because that is basically saying, God, your grace is wonderful. I'll just keep on sinning so that I can have more grace. And Paul says, should we do that? No, because you are baptized into our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, Paul states in our epistle that those who live this way have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, that we are not to be deceived by empty words. And so he cautions you not to be, be uh, deceived by these empty words which say, don't worry, you don't need to bother to hear the word of God or to keep it. You don't need to confess your sin. But instead, what repentance does mean is to turn, to turn away from our sin to turn to Christ, to cling to him, not to continue in our sins with smugness and security, but to actually flee from our sin and to pray to God saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, to acknowledge our sins before God and receive from God his forgiveness, to watch and to pray, to fight that which assails us and to walk as children of light. And just as we fail to diligently hear and keep the word of God, so also we fail as we repent. With these failings, though, we plead guilty. We cry out to the Lord who can even cast out demons saying, Lord, have mercy upon me. After all, Jesus is the merciful one and he has had mercy on you. He continues to shower his mercy upon you for his mercies are new to you every morning. For since Jesus can cast out demons, he can also in mercy cast out all of your sin and create in you a clean heart and a right spirit. He does not cast you away from his presence, but he does these wonderful things for you by forgiving you and reconciling you to your father. Jesus does this through the proclamation of the word, not through muteness, not through silence, but as the word is proclaimed, 
as it enters your ears, as your eyes see the word of God, as you ponder on it, as you hear it, as you listen to it, Christ is delivering to you that which he earned for you on the cross. He made the perfect payment for your sin. He bled and died for your, uh, in your place on the cross so that you can be set free from sin, death, and the power of the devil. And through this word of God, the spirit is at work to deliver to you these blessings. And so therefore you are set free from your sin and that you are forgiven of your iniquities and God remembers them no more. A beautiful thing that Psalm 103 teaches us. You are set free from death and that you, are not, that you now have eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your time that you may have in the cemetery, at the grave, is temporary. Christ will come who lives and he will raise your body up so that you also shall live. And you are set free from the devil in that you are no longer a slave to Satan. You're no longer chained to him. You're no longer bound to him, but you are baptized into Christ. You are adopted into God's family. You are rescued from the clutches of the devil. You are now a child of light, a child of God. For Jesus is your savior. He has come to seek and save you. He took your sin upon himself and paid for them all through his substitutionary death. And salvation now belongs to you. The word of God and the holy sacraments are the means of Christ to grant you life. Life with him in this world and eternal life in the world to come. So blessed truly are you for hearing this word of God. Blessed are you for being credited with keeping the law, the, the word through faith in Christ. And blessed are our children when they hear the saving word of God and keep it. May God preserve our church with the pure proclamation of the word and the right administration of the sacraments. And may God guide our synod who celebrates its 175th anniversary to genuine and sincere faithfulness. Amen. And the peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen. Thank you.